I hope we were ever able to give you uh, one of the handouts uh, this evening. Uh, if if not, uh, what was handed out to you, if you've been in our Wednesday night class on Philippians, uh, what was handed out to you are the last two lessons of that uh, of that class, and that's what we'll be going over this evening. Uh, and if you want to follow along, I wrote this sermon uh, answering all of the questions on both sides of the paper. So if you want to follow along, I don't say now we're answering question number two. I don't say that. You kind of have to listen for the, the question and the answer. You kind of have to read along, read ahead, okay? Uh, but we're answering all of the questions uh, uh, in, on page 11 and page 12 of our Philippians class. When you start something, you, you really should finish it. I'm notorious for, uh, uh, you know, starting some things and not, not finishing them, all right? Uh, we've got a bathroom at the house that's got, you know, putty all over where the nail holes are and putty where all the cracks are, and there it sits, you know. I hadn't got up there and sanded or anything like that, so uh, I'm notorious for doing things like that, but uh, when it comes to God's Word in, in this particular class, I felt, I felt like it was important for us to finish the class. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do tonight. So just bear with me as we, as we try to finish uh, the book of Philippians. Uh, in the syllabus, the outline in your, your syllabus that I gave you at the very first class back in the spring, uh, chapter 1 we were going to look at, we're going to, we were going to be looking at partaking of the partaking of Christ. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the people of Christ. Number Chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the pursuit of Christ. And chapter 4, we were going to be looking at the power of Christ. So keep that in mind as we're going along. We had an outline this morning of, of seek and find. Um, and uh, tonight, we're going to finish chapter 4. Now, chapter 4, verse 1, should really be chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3 only has 21 verses, but... Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 should really be chapter 3, verse 22, uh, because in chapter 3, Paul warns against confidence. He, he warns against confidence in the flesh. He warns against living for the flesh. He gives an exhortation for the Philippians to know Christ. And then Paul, he sums it up. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Then we get the meat of chapter 4. Read with me, Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. I implore you, Adia and Suntike, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, to help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Euodia and Suntike were two women who were having a problem. What? We don't particularly know the problem. I don't know, but it was enough that Paul had heard about it. And he urges the true companion here, Clement. And he, he, he urges the true companion, he urges Clement. Uh, true companion, some people think it may have been Silas. Some think, people think it may have been Timothy. But he urges the true companion. He urges Clement. He urges the rest of the Philippians. To, uh, to help them, to be of the same mind, to help them be of the same mind. Uh, these had worked with Paul in the gospel. And we learn here that 
as Christians, we cannot expect the gospel to flourish if we are constantly and consistently at odds with each other. Families who are at odds with each other. Governments who are at odds with each other. Businesses who are at odds with each other. Congregations who are at odds with each other. They fall into this same rule. We can't expect the gospel to flourish. We can't expect our families to flourish. We can't expect this congregation to flourish if we are always at odds with each other. We've got to work by the same rule. But notice, these at Philippi, they were in the book of life. They were in the book of life. Their names were written in the book of life. Their names were there. The book of life suggests the idea that as the redeemed form a community or or citizenship, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, a catalog of the citizens' names are preserved there. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, or they're registered in heaven. Revelation chapter 3 and verse, verse 5. Now, the question is, whose name is in the book of life? If, if, who's, Paul is writing to Christians there at Philippi. Who will be there? Who will, whose name will be in the book of life? Notice what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Notice, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. The firstborn, Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, is Jesus Christ. That's who the firstborn is. So the church of the firstborn is the church of Christ. The church of Christ are the true Christians who are registered in heaven. Notice and read with me here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Notice that the church belongs to God. Notice that the church is set apart. Notice that the church is in Christ. And we find this, how you get into Christ, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. The church has been called, it's been called by the gospel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The church has been called by the gospel, and the church has called on the name of the Lord. We learn that in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17, and in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So, therefore, what we've learned in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23, the church is the enrolled. The church is what's enrolled in heaven. They're the ones who are registered, and they are the ones who are in the book of life. It's the church. Notice with me as we read the imperatives of verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4 of Philippians. An imperative are sentences that give a command. In the example on the screen, we notice that the words, look around, that can be a sentence, that in itself. Look around is an imperative command. Uh, help out, that's, that in itself is a sentence by itself. Help out, it's an imperative command. Be good, find yourself, smile, do something, 
appreciate, look up, stick with it. All of these are imperative commands and can stand alone as a sentence if the exclamation point is put at the end of them. I want you to notice here in chapter 4, verse 4, the imperative commands. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Imperative sentences are sentences which give commands. Each of these that we're reading on the screen right now is a command. Just as much as Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you is a command. To rejoice in the Lord is a command as well. Many times, though, we forget that command. We don't abide by the command to rejoice in the Lord always. But we do repent and be baptized. We must be balanced Christians, and we must obey all the commands of God. To rejoice is to be glad. It's to be exceedingly glad. It's to be well. It's to thrive. It's to, to greet one another, to hail one another. It's at the beginning of Paul's letters, it's a greeting, and it's also to salute. Forty-two times the word is translated in the King James Version to rejoice, the original word for rejoice. We should rejoice because we are in the Lord, because we are saved. We should rejoice as Christians, and it's a command to do so because we're going to heaven. That's a command to do so. We are to rejoice because we are in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us how to get into Christ. But notice, all the spiritual blessings are in Christ. There's not one spiritual blessing that is outside of Jesus Christ. So we must be in Jesus Christ to get all of the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. And there's only one way to get into Jesus Christ, and that's to be baptized into Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 13. And just as there is gentleness and severity in God, there should also be gentleness and severity in His people. I want you to look at this, and let's reconcile just a minute. The apostle commands to let your gentleness be known to all men. Yet, we read in 2 John 10 and 11, Do not bid false teachers good speed. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, Withdraw yourself from false teachers. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, Have no fellowship with false teachers. Titus chapter 1, verse 13, Sharply rebuke false teachers. Titus chapter 1, verse 11, stop the mouths of false teachers. Yes, we should let our gentleness be known to all men, even false teachers. But we should stop their mouths. We should sharply rebuke them. We should have no fellowship with them. And we should withdraw from them and bid them not good speed. There is a severity to God's love as well as a gentleness. And the same should be for His people. There are limits to gentleness that are biblical. Why are we to let our gentleness be known? Well, we learn this from the Scriptures because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand in, in what sense? Well, He could come back at any moment. That was Matt's, uh, Matt's devo at the, uh, at the camp out this, this past weekend. 
that the Lord Jesus Christ could come back at any moment, the Apostle Peter says. Read with me. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice this chart. The world, our lives are full of anxiety-provoking situations. That's the label at the top if you can't see it, if you're sitting too far back. We have lots of anxiety-provoking situations. And, and many times when we have this anxiety-provoking situation, the physiological, the cognitive, the emotional, and the behavioral instances in our lives, they, they may all come into play or maybe one section of them comes into play. In other words, uh, you have this problem. Something's happening to you right now and you have an increased heart rate. Your, your muscle uh, tenses up. You, you start sweating. You start blushing. You start feeling dizzy. You start feeling nauseated. Your stomach starts to hurt. You have this fear, this emotional fear, this dread, this panic, this frustration, this anger, this disappointment, this sadness comes over you. You have these what else that are rocking around in your mind. You worry about certain symptoms. You worry about your anxiety. You worry about the situation. You, you have a reduced performance due to the anxiety and you just finally, finally try, try to avoid it all. You ever had that happen to you? You ever had that happen to you? I think we've all had that happen to us. We've all been in anxiety-provoking situations. The, uh, one of the words for... Uh, a synonym for anxiety is worry. And the, the, the root word for worry means to strangle. That's what the root word for worry means, to strangle. Do you ever feel, do you, do you ever feel pulled apart? That's what the anxiety means, the word for anxiety. The word anxious in the original language in the New Testament, it means to be pulled apart in different directions. Have you ever felt pulled apart in different directions? Have you ever felt so put upon that you felt strangled? Well, this is what Paul is talking about here. That's what Paul is talking about here. When he says, be anxious for nothing. Don't feel pulled apart. Don't feel strangled for nothing. What does he mean? What is the antidote for this anxiety that we all might go through. Well, the, the antidote is, is prayer. You know, we usually pray about big things and forget the little things. But I found in my life the little things grow up to be big things. And we need to pray about those little things too. Why is this so difficult to follow? Why is this command to be anxious for nothing... So, and it's a command. It's, it's just as much of a command as repent and be baptized. Why is it so hard to follow? To be anxious for nothing does not mean we should act like we don't care. But there is to be such confidence in God as to free the mind of anxiety. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 says, Take no thought for your life. That's the position we need to get our lives in, get our minds in. Take no thought for your life. How are we to pray? Well, it says in, in here in our Scripture that we're talking about, we're to make our request known to God. Now, this carries the idea 
of adoration. That we adore God. That God is, is big enough to take care of all of our worries and, and all of our anxiety. God is big enough. It says we, we're to supplicate. And that's just a little stronger word. Supplication is a little stronger word. It's an earnest sharing of our problems. God will not hear us for our many words. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. But for our persistence. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Our requests are to be made with thanksgiving, with appreciation. Our appreciation, many times we're, we're eager to ask and we're slow to appreciate. Have you ever thought that? We're, we're eager to ask for things, but we're slow to appreciate things. Uh, the picture on the screen is from a movie that I watched uh, back um, before we went on vacation and did all that. It's from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay, And uh, uh, this is Esmeralda, and she's kneeling in the big cathedral of Notre Dame there. And she's praying. And she's praying for her people. She's praying for something unselfish. And they show all the prayers of everybody else that's there praying too. And everybody else is praying for wealth. Everybody else is praying for glory. Everybody else is praying for the man or the woman or the house or the, or the king's favor. Everybody else is praying for something they want. And she's praying for somebody else. It got me to thinking that we should be appreciative in our prayers. We are very quick to ask for things, but we're very slow to appreciate what God has given us and what God will do for us. That will help a lot on our anxiety. We'll gain the peace. We'll gain the peace of God. Uh, read with me here in John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus is trying to tell these apostles at this time, in this, in these, this long conversation of John chapter 14 all the way to John chapter 17, He's trying to tell them not to worry. Don't be worried about all this stuff that's going on. I leave you my peace. I give you my peace. John chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, Jesus said. If we're in Jesus Christ, we can have that peace as well. Because Jesus has overcome the world. God's peace has been described as a quiet confidence God's peace is a quiet confidence and God's peace will guard our hearts it will guard our minds in Christ Jesus read with me verses verses 8 and 9 finally brethren whatever things are true whatever things are noble whatever things are just whatever things are pure whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Is meditation a command? You betcha. To think on, to meditate. It's an imperative command as much as repent and be baptized is an imperative command. Notice here, when we meditate, if you, if you look at the word meditation from a biblical point of view, it makes sense to the Christian. If you look at the word for meditation the way the world looks at it, 
Well, it can confuse us sometimes. Notice with me, this, these are commands. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, But let a man examine himself. That's a command. We are all to examine ourselves. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Before we take of the Lord's Supper, that's a command to every Christian to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Examine yourselves, again, an imperative command, as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Are you a Christian or are you not a Christian? Count up. How did you become a Christian? Examine yourselves, whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? If you're in Christ, then Jesus Christ is in you. Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. How could you be disqualified? Well, examine yourself and find that out. Find out that examination. So this word meditation, look at it. To reckon. When we examine ourselves, when we meditate, we are to reckon, we're to, comp- we're to compute, we're to calculate, we're to count over, we're to take an account, we're to make account of, uh, to, to, to pass to one's account, to impute, to number among, to reckon or account. It's almost like, a, almost like a, 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 somebody who's figuring and taking numbers. By reckoning up all the reasons to gather and infer, to consider, to take into account, to judge, to determine, to purpose, to decide. We are to meditate on these things. Now, meditate. let me show you what meditation is not. Meditation is not Hinduism. Meditation is not Buddhism. Meditation is not some mystical, new age circle that you get in and you chant over and over and over again. Uh, one single mantra or word over and over and over again like the New Age or Buddhists or, or Hindus do so they can experience God and receive some kind of revelation. That's what they're trying to do. That's not what meditation is. What biblical meditation is, is this. Biblical meditation, and it answers number eight if you're, if you're keeping score in our handout. What, what are we to think about? What are we to think about? Well, we're supposed to think about true things, right? We're supposed to think about noble things, just things, pure things, lovely things, things of good report. Our objective is to dwell on, think on, the truth and reality that's already been revealed in God's Word. Why? Well, because God's Word nourishes us. The true things... The just things, the good report, things of good report, they nourish us. You know, if a 60-second commercial can make you buy something, what do you think what you think about can do? What do you think what you meditate on can do? If you meditate on it on something for an hour, if you meditated over the love that you have for each other, if you meditated on that for an hour, do you think you'd come away with with a little more love for each other? If we meditated on on the worship of God before we came to worship itself, do you think our experience in worship would be even greater? Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, make the Bible your primary focus of meditation. David said, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. As you read the Bible, here's some suggestions. You might ask yourself these questions. 
As you read a verse, is there some truth that I should know from this verse? And, and two, is there something that I should start doing because this verse says I need to be doing this? Or is there something that I should stop doing because of this verse that I've just read? Meditate on these things. As you read the Bible, you might experience some, maybe some new answers that you didn't know before. I certainly do. I I certainly read the Bible all the time. And as I read, I go, wow, I I didn't think about it that way. And then as we're in class, like like Brian this morning, we were were looking at just a little little snippet of the Scriptures, didn't we? And Brian brought out something that I didn't even see. I looked over it how many times, Brian? Ten, twenty times? And I I didn't see what Brian saw. That's why we come to Bible class and we, we study with each other and we learn and we grow, you see. We'll do this, and we'll understand God's peace. That's a promise. That's a promise. If you want peace in your life, meditate on God's Word. Meditate on the true things, the lovely things, the pure things, the just things, the things of good report. God's peace is knowing that I'm saved. How can we ensure that we'll, that God's peace will be with us? Well, verse 9, what we see Paul do, we should do. Notice what we see Paul doing that we should be doing here in in the book of Philippians. He he had efforts to save the lost. He did that. Paul tried to save those people that were lost. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. We should be doing that too. His joy in suffering. Even though he suffered, he had joy. We should be that kind of Christian as well. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. We should imitate Paul. His pressing toward the goal. Even though there were so many problems, even though he was in prison as he wrote this letter, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he pressed toward the goal. So should we. The goal of heaven, the goal that God has given us. His concern for the brethren, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he had great concern for the brethren. So should we. All the people here at Fountainhead, all the Christians that we know of all around us, we should have great concern for them, those in the hospital, those in the prisons, those that we know who aren't able to be here right now, those who have lost their way, we should have great concern for our brethren. We should be doing these things because we see Paul doing these things. Look with me at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. Now we're on the last lesson. If you'll turn to page 12, we're at generosity now. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now, at last, your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did not care, excuse me, though that you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Christians at Philippi, they were a generous people. They were a very generous people. Notice what the proverb writer says in Proverbs 22, verse 9. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. The Philippian brethren, they made sure that uh, Paul rejoiced because they knew, he knew that they generally cared, genuinely cared about him. Paul rejoiced because the Philippians genuinely cared about him. Paul had learned to be content even when he was abased, even when he was made low. That's what abased means. He was made low. 
He, he knew how to be content even in abundance when he was full and, or even when he was hungry. He knew how to be content. You know, sometimes life, it just gets too hard. How could Paul do all things through Christ? The pain, the anguish, the highs and the lows of life are hard. And sometimes we just don't want to talk about it. But if we're in Christ, and we know we're in Christ, and we... We remember, you know, a lot of times we forget that we as Christians are in Christ Jesus. If we can just, in our mind and in our pain and in our anguish and in our turmoil, if we can just remember that we're in Christ Jesus, we have the hope of eternal life. If we can just remember that, He strengthens us. How? Well, because of what He did. He was crucified for us. And my recognition of that will give me peace. Even in times of, of, of bad trouble. Notice verse 14 of chapter 4 of the Philippians. They've been assisting Paul since the beginning of the gospel. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. The Philippians had been assisting Paul again since the beginning of the gospel in that area. And notice he addresses the letter at the very beginning. He addresses it to the bishops and the deacons and the saints. Now, for a congregation to have bishops and deacons, they've had to have been established for a little while because we understand from the qualifications of elders that they can't be a novice. They can't be somebody that just has become a Christian. So these are men that have been there for a little while. All right, This is an established congregation. And they have begun helping in the gospel with Paul from the jump there in the area of Philippi. And their sacrifice was the fruit that he sought. They sacrificed for Paul. Notice notice what uh, Brother Lipscomb and Brother Shepard, they wrote about our Philippian brothers and sisters. It's it's very telling. uh, Brother Lipscomb says, They did not wait to see what others would do. They gave what they could. Not only had they contributed to his aid when he departed, but they sent once and again. Here's Brother Shepherd. Well might he speak so favorably of this church to the Corinthians inasmuch as they formed such a contrast with all others. Even now, how sad a picture of selfishness and ingratitude does Paul draw here in the praise he bestows upon this faithful church. In other words, he's putting so much praise upon the Philippians, all others pale. In comparison, all right? The example shines so brightly only by its contrast with the prevailing selfishness. And Brother Lipscomb again, the example of the Philippian church shines luminously by the side of many churches of the present day, doling out mere pittances to those who have spent their lives in building them up. We've got to remember, all of us here, all of us, Even Brother Charlie, who has been here since day one, I think, Brother Charlie. We've all got to remember we are drinking from cisterns we did not dig. 
We understand that. We understand that we stand on the backs of great men and women who worked hard in this congregation to build a congregation of Lord's Church here at 290 Fountainhead Road. Not only do we have those at our back pushing us, we have God's peace, God's glory in heaven where God Almighty lives in our front. And we've got to be striving for that. We can't give up. We can't go down. We've got to be as giving as the Philippian brothers and sisters were. That's our example. That's what we're going to strive for. Not only strive for, but surpass. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The Philippians had sent what Paul needed, and their sacrifice was a sweet-smelling aroma. Just as the, the priests of old would offer up a bull on the altar, and it was a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God, their sacrifice of their things, the things that they had sent to Paul to help him out while he was in prison, that was a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. When we give on Sunday morning, and we give as God wants us to give, it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. He loves that. God is pleased when His children give. And notice, God will give us everything that we'll need. He'll supply all of our basic needs. If we freely sacrifice for Christ, He will bless us so that we need no good thing. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, we'll get the food, we'll get the clothing, we'll get the shelter that we'll need. They'll be ours. So look at verse 20, Now to God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we glorify God. He has given us so much and we give back. And so the glory is to God because it's God's anyway. We glorify God forever and ever for His goodness. Paul ends the letter, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. There were some who, who stayed with Paul and they, they tended uh, to his needs. Now, now Caesar, he, he wasn't a Christian. Caesar wasn't a Christian at this time. But his household consisted of his servants. It consisted of his slaves. It consisted of his guards, his family members. So some of his slaves, some of his servants... Maybe his guards, maybe even maybe even a family member or two, were, were, were Christians. Notice verse verse twenty three. Paul ends this letter the same way he does every letter that he's written, with his core message of gra- the grace of, of Jesus. Notice this with me. I, I went back through and I looked at the ending of every letter of Paul. Uh, Romans, First, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. First and second Timothy, Titus and Philemon. And I just want you to notice here with me. Here in Romans chapter 16, verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 
Amen. 1 Corinthians 16, 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Galatians 6, 18, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Ephesians 6, 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Notice here in Philippians 4.23, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Colossians 4.18, the, the salutation by my own hand. Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5.28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. 2 Thessalonians 3.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And amen. 1 Timothy 6, verse 21, by for. By for by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 22. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Titus 3, verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Philemon chapter 1, verse 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Notice how Paul's focus at the end of every letter is the grace of Christ, the grace of God, the free gift. That's what grace means, is a gift that God has given us. I got the, I got the um, uh, pleasure of teaching the, the young men at Horizons uh, back a few weeks ago. And some of our young men that are here today were in that, in that class. And my topic that I got to speak about was God's grace. And we, we talked about God's grace, about we, we defined God's grace and what it means uh, to have God's grace and, and how, you, how you get God's grace. And that was one of the questions that I asked. You know, in every instant Paul is writing to Christians, we as Christians, how did we get the grace of God? How did we get God's grace? And I take your mind back to a few weeks ago when we talked about John chapter 3, verse 14, where it said that Jesus... Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 14, that just as the, the, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses had to lift that up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we looked back at Numbers chapter 21, where Moses had to make a serpent in the desert because the children of Israel were getting bitten by the snakes. They wanted to be relieved from the snakes. And God's grace said, Moses, make a serpent, put it on a pole, and whoever looks at it will live. That was God's grace. But it took faith on the people's part to look at it and live. It's the same way for us today. Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. God, by His grace, gave us Jesus Christ. That was God's grace. He gave us a free gift. It was Jesus Christ who died on the cross. He was lifted up just like the serpent in the desert was lifted up. And by His grace, we are saved through faith. We have faith enough to know that if we believe and obey, we'll be saved. The obedience is where grace and faith meet. And so, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Until the last, until the day of, of Jesus Christ. If, he's, if He started a good work in you when you became into Jesus Christ, He'll complete that good work. But you have work to do too. We all have work to do if we're in Jesus Christ. And, and we, we, we can't just 
take the grace that we've been given and I, I, I used the example of the boys in, at Horizons. I gave a boy a, a, a pretend $1 million bill, and I had him put it in his billfold, right? He sticks that pretend $1 million bill in his billfold. I said, now, now put it back where you usually put your billfold and sit back down. And that's a lot of us. We take God's grace, and we put it in our pocket, and we just sit on it. We can't do that. For, for, for God's salvation, for His free gift to do us any good, we've got to use it. We've got to get up and we've got to work. We've got things to do too. We finished the book of Philippians tonight. But Jesus, He is the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. It says in Hebrews, Has Jesus finished with you? Has He even started? You have to ask yourself the question, are you in Christ? If you're not in Christ Jesus, then the good work hasn't been started in you yet. But if you are a Christian, then we can achieve peace with each other. We can achieve peace with the Lord. And we can achieve peace in all circumstances that come our way if we are in Christ and we remain in Christ. That's the, the lesson from the book of Philippians. To remain in Christ because He's powerful. The power of Christ. Maybe some of you need to understand God's power again. You've lost your way. And you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but you got to. you got to. you got to get it out. You've got to talk about it. You've got to get this off your chest. The anxiety is weighing you down. And you can't obey the Lord's command because you're too filled with anxiety. You're too filled with worry. You're too filled with dread. God doesn't want that for you. In fact, He commands that you not be anxiety-ridden, not be pulled apart, not be strangled. You shouldn't feel that way, Christian. You can ask for help tonight. and We'll help you. We want to pray with you. Maybe there's someone who's not in Jesus Christ. You've never obeyed. You don't know what it means. But you understand what Jesus Christ did for you. You know that He died for you. And you know that you need to obey the gospel. And you, need, you know that you need to obey the gospel by being baptized. But maybe you're scared. Maybe you're scared that you'll have to step out in front of all these people. Let me tell you something about these people. They love you. Don't be afraid. Come right now. As together we stand and sing.